Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. And I just want to say welcome to all you here in the sanctuary, you who are out on the lawn, and those in the overflow. We're glad you're here and um, joining us for James chapter 3. We're going to be pointing out the biggest troublemaker in this church. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a difficult passage. In fact, um, last service as one of the, I won't, I won't name who, because that would go against what I'm about to tell you. But uh, somebody said, thanks for the message, jerk, and left. And so I, just to give you a, a foretaste of what we're, we're in for this morning, um, we are going to be talking about the biggest troublemaker in the church. And I stole that title from Dr. Van Cleve, who was a, um, a professor at Life Bible College. He was one of Pastor Chuck's um, professors, and he was actually doing a revival series at a little country church, and the first night he announced at the end of the service, he said, come back tomorrow night, and I'm going to point out the biggest troublemaker in this church. Well, word got out, started spreading around, and everybody from the entire town came to hear that the biggest troublemaker in the church was James chapter 3, the tongue. The tongue is the biggest troublemaker in the church. Your tongue is the biggest troublemaker in your life, is it not? You know, I, I kind of got a taste for this myself. Um, it, it was inadvertently. I was um, studying really hard one time for one of my messages, and I was just getting really tired. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to finish this up on Friday, so I'm going to email my notes to myself, and I'm just going to finish them at home on Saturday. Well, I was tired, and so during that time, we were sending out a lot of prayer requests, and you know, you just kind of have muscle memory, and I just tap, 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 you know, and hit, you know, typed in the you know, prayer, prayer email, and I just sent my notes out to the entire church. It was James chapter 1, verse 3, and I don't know, by coincidence, the title happened to be Drama in the Church. And so there it was, Drama in the Church, and then I was starting out my, my sermon, and basically it started out saying, now, if you come to Calvary Chapel, you might want to know a few things. And then I listed off all of the rumors that had gone on about me up to that point in the church, all in town, you know, things that I'd heard about myself, which were pretty bad. And, and, and yet what happened was people started calling each other in the church. Did you hear what's going, what's going on at the church? You know, and, and like, did you see what Mike wrote about this and that and the other thing? And, and I was just like, oh, man, and people started emailing me. Excuses why they hadn't been in church and, you know, all this stuff. And uh, anyway, uh, so after all of that, I was like, oh, man, that was a huge mistake. And so then I had to write this email just to kind of damage control. Dear church family, many of you have asked if I sent you my notes on Sunday on purpose, some with excuses to why you weren't in church on Sunday. I assure you I did not send it to anyone because they missed church. I sent it on accident. Also, thanks to all of you who filled me in on other rumors that have circulated around about me. No, I never did hard time for fraud, had a nervous breakdown, or pastored churches before I planted this one. Thanks for your feedback, but I'd rather not know what gossip is going on around about me, or going on around, around about me. Um, I might develop a nervous complex. My purpose for talking about rumors that have circulated in the past was for entertainment purposes only. I was, wasn't trying to clear my name of anything. Thanks for your concern and outcry of support. I've never felt so loved. And then I never slept for about three months after that. <laughs> <sighs> 
And, and just as a, just as a, a, a thumb note, you might want to take note of this. If you have heard rumors about me, I don't want to hear about them after service. Okay? I, I don't, I just rather not know ignorance is bliss. I'd rather not know all the wonderful things people are saying about me or my family. Um, but James has said a lot about this already as we've gone through this book and, and certainly the biggest troublemaker for sure within the church. And so if you're able, will you stand with me? James chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this morning. In verse 1, James by the Holy Spirit says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest the little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and a bitter and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And Father, we thank you for this passage that is challenging for us, Lord. We all have a tongue and we are all um, victims of what it has done in our lives. And I just pray, Jesus, that you would um, just help us, Lord. Just give us grace as we look at this passage together that you'd help us to see the solutions that we need by your spirit. That you would be here speaking to us and we would have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've had any reason to turn the news on lately, or if you've seen strange things going on in our world, um, politics and looting and fires and all kinds of those things happening right now, and, and COVID-19. Of course, all of us are going through a very difficult time in our nation's history. You know, 2020 is not the, the brightest spot in our history, you know, so far. It's been pretty down and crazy. And yet exciting in other ways as Christians, we see the things that are unfolding and that's exciting. But one thing I, I've noticed, and, and I think it started out with people just being very angry. And, and it was anger and rage and things that were happening on the media and mean things, blaming everybody for everything that's going on. And then after that, you know, of course, the George Floyd thing happened and then riots and looting and every, just all that frustration, built up frustration just kind of exploded and maybe from a lot longer than just the last few months. But we see these things happen and we see how people, they have a visceral negative reaction to difficulty. 
And certainly that was the case when you look at the church, the early church, as they're scattered abroad, and James writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, they were being persecuted there in Jerusalem, so they ran for their lives, and then men were getting letters from the chief priests to find them wherever they'd run to, and to arrest them and to throw them into jail. And so there was a difficult time during the early church. And during difficulties, the temptation is to use your tongue to hurt other people. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your own life or in your own family when things are tough, finances are tight, or, or you know, relationships are not good, or somebody's sick. It's easy to snap right at somebody else, bite their head off, as we might say, or um, say something rude under your breath, or maybe even yell something at the top of your lungs. And James is definitely aware of that tendency. And so he's been preparing us for that in chapter 1, um, starting as early as verse 19 in chapter 1. And so he says this in verse 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You have two ears, only one mouth. We should listen twice as much as we talk. And he says, and when you're wrathful, when you're angry, be slow to speak, right? Don't just let whatever comes to your mind come out of your mouth. And then, of course, he, then he reinforces that in verse 26 when he says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious. And you think of the, I don't think of the word religious, it has a different meaning for us, but think of the word pious or somebody who is devout in their faith. Because if anybody thinks they're devout in their faith and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, his religion is useless. It's, it's pointless. You know, if we can't bridle or can't keep a guard over our mouth, it's pointless. And so he instructs us in James chapter 2, verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We have to realize that there's consequences for the things that come out of our mouth. And that there is a need, a huge need within the Christian sphere to watch what we say and how we carry ourselves. If you recall, he also told us something that was probably the answer to all these problems. And that was in verse, chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. In other words, if I have a difficulty in knowing what to say or how to say it or what to do or how to do it, I have this promise that if I ask by faith, that God will give it to me. And, and I believe that this is the key to the Christian life, not just the key to the book of James, which it certainly is that. But it's also the key to the Christian life, as we're going to see getting into this amazing book. So in James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, My brethren... Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So James, uh, and I love that he includes himself, we shall receive a stricter judgment. I always remember listening to Chuck Missler, and he always tried to say, well, I'm not a pastor, so this verse doesn't apply to me. Uh, yeah, right. Um, no, it, it applies to anybody who teaches God's word. He says, you're going to receive a stricter judgment. Now, certainly there are those who have wrong motives, who maybe you see them on TV, they're just about, you know, 
fleecing people for money and living in giant mansions and you know lying about their who they really you know if they really love the Lord and, and certainly there are those people and they're going to receive definitely dark judgment you know for what they do but this is talking about the Christian teacher it's talking about a man who truly has a heart for the Lord who or a woman who truly has a heart for the Lord and they're serving the Lord and the Lord has given them a position of teaching and he says the, the fact is you are going to receive a stricter judgment. And yet I think to some degree, there's probably someone in our lives or to some sphere of influence that we have in our lives that we are a teacher, most of us. And if that means if you're a husband and you're leading your wife in the Lord, or if you're a mother or a father and you're leading your children in the Lord, you are definitely in that place of a teacher. And so there's some responsibility that comes with this. But if you have um, a, a group of people who listen to you, if you're a pastor or a, a small group leader or whatever, then certainly this definitely applies to you, that you re will receive a stricter judgment. Now, we're not talking about you know, being cast into hell fire if you say something wrong. But there is going to be a time where we all stand, as Paul tells us, we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be judged based on what we did with what the Lord gave us, what he laid before us, and how we acted, and how we performed in those things. Do we do them by faith, or we do them by flesh, right? We're saved by grace through faith, as we saw last time, but we're also... God's workmanship, that he's created us to do good works that we might walk in them, that he's prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And so we have this responsibility as Christians to do what God has called us to do. And if that job is teaching, then yes, you are going to receive a stricter judgment. Um, and that makes me a little nervous, I, I think. You know, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 tells us in the multitude of words... Sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And isn't that the truth? We rarely will regret what we didn't say when we were angry. <laughs> right? How many times do you wish you could take back something that you said when you were angry? I mean, you feel that change come on you, right? From one moment, you know, you're just fine. And then somebody says something or something happens and all of a sudden you feel, you feel it in your brain. It's physical, isn't it? You feel yourself go down to that, what they call the reptile brain. It's a monster, right? And all of a sudden you're like, Bleh! you know, you say things you shouldn't say. You know, even if it's sweet, you know, you say it under your breath or you say it real politely. Well, at least I'm not like you. And, and what does it do? It causes damage. It causes pain. It causes hurt. You will have many opportunities in your life to keep your mouth shut. And I recommend that you take them. I recommend that I take them. What am I saying? <sighs> Not many should become teachers because they will be and we will be accountable for what we say. The words that a teacher speaks, people are going to base their impressions of who God is based on those things. They also are going to base their make their impressions of or make decisions based on what um, they do in their life, based on what a teacher teaches them about God and about his word. I always think of Moses. You remember Moses was um, the leader of the children of Israel. You know, God commissioned Moses to be the leader, to lead them out of Egypt into um, the wilderness and into the promised land. And it was supposed to be Moses who took them into the promised land. And there was one point where the people were thirsty. And so they, they asked 
uh, they complained. They said, we, we're thirsty. You know, we, you lead us out in the wilderness to die. And so Moses went to God and God said, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to go um, strike this rock and from it, water will come forward. And, and many of you have seen that rock. It's like a 60-foot tall rock with a giant, you know, water you know, cut through it. You know, it's pretty amazing. But so Moses goes up to this rock there in the Sinai Peninsula, or not in the Sinai Peninsula, in, in Arabia. And he smote the rock and it cracked in half and water gushed forward and all the people of Israel were, were satiated. Their, their thirst was quenched. But then it, once again, the people thirst. And God told Moses again, he says, go and he says, I don't want you to strike the rock. He says, I want you to speak to the rock. He just, he just said, speak to the rock and water will come forward. Well, Moses was angry with the people. And so Moses went up to the rock and he took his rod. And he says, must I smite this rock again that water will come forward? And he smites the rock a second time. That is not what God wanted him to do. God was not angry with the people. Moses was angry with the people. Of course, water came forward. But Moses received a stricter judgment. And God said, because you've done this and misrepresented me, you're not going to go into the promised land. Oops. And so Joshua would lead them into the promised land. We receive a stricter judgment. I remember, you know, I often remember this. You know, I think of um, the times when I've been frustrated. Frustrated because not enough people are, 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 are signing up for children's ministry. Or frustrated because uh, nobody seems to be interested in the things that I feel like we're supposed to be interested in. Or, or maybe um, we're, we're short on funds or something like that. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, it must be the people's fault. And the Lord always whispers to me, remember Moses, I'm not mad at those people. You might be frustrated with them, but I'm not. God never is frustrated with you. You know how hard that is as a pastor? Just kidding. <laughs> and so I always remember that, and I realize, you know what, these people need grace, you know? I can't bully them to serve Jesus. They have to serve Jesus as they grow in the grace and knowledge of him, and he's going to, to do what he wants to do. Those things are usually tests for me and not so much important for you guys to know about. But, but I, I'm no exception. There's going to be a stricter judgment by virtue of the fact that I am the one who teaches the word here. And that's, it makes sense. It's not my favorite passage in the Bible, but that's, there it is. James is addressing, I think, the same problem that Paul was addressing in, in um, Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, um, Paul says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm or a song, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things done, be done for edification. And so, what was happening in Corinth is everybody thought they had something to say. You know, everybody thought that somebody needed to, you know, they needed to be important. He says, No, don't do things to, to draw attention to yourself, but do things to build up the body. You know, you don't have to always have something to say. And, and that's kind of what was happening in Corinth. And, and what Paul and James are getting at is that God calls certain people to do certain things. He's called everybody to something. But he hasn't called everybody to everything. As we see in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, do all have gifts of prophecy? Do all teach? Do all have gifts of tongues? Do all interpret? And obviously the answer is no. He gives to each one to be a part of the body and that they're to fulfill the function that they have as a Christian in that calling that they have. And if it is to teach, then you use it for teaching. But if it's not, then don't. 
if you have a call to be a teacher, then God will clarify that in your heart and in your mind. He's going to show you that, and then he's going to, to fulfill that within your life, whether you like it or not, honestly. In fact, Jeremiah, not Pastor Jeremiah, but Jeremiah in the Bible, found himself in a difficult place because the Lord kept prophesying through him, and every time he prophesied, he'd get himself in trouble. And, and so this is what he said in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. He says, Then I said, I will not mention him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, I think it is, um, when Paul says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul couldn't hold himself back from preaching the gospel because that's what God had called him to do. And so what do you do if you're going to face a stricter judgment? Well, Paul gives us a, a remedy to that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So if you're a teacher, your least favorite Bible verse probably is James 3, 1. But you can always turn over to 1 Timothy 3, 1 and says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or pastor, he desires a good work. And so there, there you go. So there is good to it. But it's definitely something that you're called to. Pastor Chuck used to say, when, and men would come to him all the time, Pastor Chuck Smith, they'd come to him all the time and say, I'm, I'm, I think God's called me to be a pastor. And he says, I'd do everything I could to discourage them. He says, because if, if I can discourage them, they definitely aren't called. Right? Gail Irwin says, if you can see yourself doing anything else and being happy, then don't go into the ministry. That's good advice. If you can do anything else and be happy, if, if it's a burden on your heart and you couldn't be satisfied unless you were serving the Lord, then God has probably called you to do the work of the ministry. Another good motivator is not, um, to not become a teacher is that, well, we will receive a stricter judgment by virtue of the fact that we know the word. And there's always going to be, and I don't care if you're a teacher or not, there's always going to be a discrepancy between what you know the Bible says to do and what you are. That's hard for people sometimes. You know, when people become closer to my wife and I and they see that I'm just a normal guy, some people just can't handle that. I don't know why. I try to be as real as I can up here, but I am a normal guy just like you. Put my pants on one leg at a time. In fact, I don't sit in a holy happy place with an ivory throne, stained glass in my office. It's just a normal place where I, where I surmise and, and plan practical jokes to play on my coworkers, just like everybody else. And some of them are pretty good practical jokes. One time, Jesse was in my office. Jesse Hurlis, before he went to Alaska, he was in my office, and I had some vitamins sitting on the edge of my desk, strategically placed. And I pushed my book forward, and they fell over. And I was like, oh, will you grab those? And as he bent over, I took a rag, and I ripped it. And I put it down, and he was like, oh. And I was like, oh, dude, your pants. He's like, these are brand new pants, you know? And if that wasn't enough, then I rigged this, the sprayer on the on the sink that when he turned the water on, it would spray him, which was awesome. And then I, if that wasn't enough, I planted a little um, beeping device that just randomly beeped this really super high-pitched squeal that you can't find because it just sounds like it's coming from everywhere type of a thing. And I'd hide that around in his, in his workspace. And so all day long, he's like, what is that squealing? <laughs> this is the kind of guy I am. I know I'm a jerk, but I love it. Just a normal guy. 
But we are held accountable because we do teach things. And a lot of times there's just that moment where you're reading through something and this is one of those passages where you're going to read through it and you're going to be like, oh, man, this is going to be tough to teach because everybody in the office heard me complaining about that politician the other day. And now I got to tell them, hey, it's not a good thing to do, right? And we're held accountable for the things we say. In fact, John chapter 15, verse 22, Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, speaking of the Pharisees, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. You see, that's true for all of us. When we go through the word and we hear things in the word, it's necessary to not be a hearer only, but a doer of the work, as, as James has told us, and actually to put the things into practice that we learn. We're responsible for it. But, but those who are called to teach actually see this as a benefit. And I think that we should see it as a benefit in, in the fact that we're always challenged to walk closer to Jesus. And the benefits of that are unmatchable. There's nothing better than to get into God's word and, and to hate it because it's hitting you where you hurt, but to then say, okay, Lord, and yield and obey. And so when it comes to being a teacher, we should be fearful, but we should also have an eagerness or a yearning within our hearts to do it. Verse 2, he says, for we stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. I, I think that James is uniquely qualified to talk about this. He, he says, anybody who doesn't stumble in word is a perfect man. And he had more experience probably than most people of what it was like to live with a perfect man. Now, some of you, under, you, know, you feel like that's your spouse. Well, they're perfect. They're never making mistakes. You know, it's hard to live with them. But no, I mean, James, seriously, he grew up with Jesus. And for probably over 20 years, I don't know how much younger James was than Jesus, but he got to observe a man who never mumbled under his breath, who never said a mean thing about another person, who was always kind and courteous and polite and thoughtful, didn't gossip, didn't slander. And that had to be infuriating for James. I mean, can you imagine, you know, every time you say something that you shouldn't say, Jesus says the thing that you don't want to hear, you know? And there he was. And yet he... He would say that anybody who does not stumble in word is a perfect man. No doubt he's thinking of his brother. Now, I will say this is a little bit more complex in our world than it was in theirs because they could use words. They could maybe even shout it out in a crowd. But we can text and tweet and email and share a meme or share a post or make a post. I don't, it's amazing to me. I don't know. You, I look at my news feed and it's ridiculous. It seems like every other news article is something that somebody tweeted. Something that this person, you know, Kanye West tweeted this and removed it immediately. Well, it didn't matter if you removed it immediately because now it's in the news and Newsweek thinks this is, this is newsworthy. You know, and, and everybody's just looking at what everybody says and it's so easy and I don't know what it is. We hide behind our little computer screen as if we're safe there and then we broadcast things to the world. Things we can't get back. Things that you could take down immediately, but by the time you take them down, everybody's talking and everybody knows about it. Proverbs 10, 19 says, In the multitude of words there is sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. He who restrains his tweet is wise. He who restrains his text 
is wise. How many times have you sent an email or a text and right as you hit send, you were like, oh, no. What if we lived where we never responded in haste, but in patience and in prayer, we ask God for wisdom and then, only then, we texted or tweeted or responded or talked if we ask God, Lord, is this going to be edifying? Is this going to provoke people to love and good works? Or is this going to tear down insult, slander, maim? You know, there was some guys who decided that they really wanted to be more godly in their lives and they were struggling with things but they didn't want to they just wanted to get together with some other guys who were like-minded who could help them through the tough times and so they started a bible study about five weeks in because it takes about five weeks for guys to really feel connected and comfortable with other guys they they were doing their bible study and one of the guys decided you know this is probably time to open up and he said you know guys i just wanted to confess something to you guys at kind of for accountability and that is is that i have this problem with gambling. I, I've downloaded an app on my phone. I've been gambling. Um, I, I, sometimes I even go to a poker game. And a couple weeks ago, I lost my entire check. I haven't been able to tell my wife yet. And it's kind of a serious situation. And, and another guy says, you know, I'm, hey, if we're going to be sharing and confessing, he says, I, I have a real lust problem. And I've been really struggling with that. You know, I've been looking at things on the internet I shouldn't be looking at. And I just, I'd like some prayer for that too. I, I just don't even know how to get, get through this. The other guy said, well, you know, you know, if we're confessing, I, I think that I wasn't going to say this, but I, I think that I, I'd like to say, you know, I've kind of made some shady business deals and I haven't been super honest with people, you know, and, and I, I, the Lord's been convicting me about it and I want to start doing business on the up and up. And the fourth guy said, okay, well, I just, I just really want to get out of here because I have a gossip problem and I just can't wait to go tell everybody what you guys... <laughs> you see how powerful that is? How much destruction a talebearer, a whisperer can make. A secret is something you tell only one person at a time, right? Isn't that the way that it is? Don't tell anybody else this. I'm telling you, you're the only person I'm telling. Well, they're, they're going to tell their only person, and that person's going to tell their only person until everybody knows. And it's kind of a sad thing. Oh. A, a man went to his pastor one time, and he said, hey, I have this, I have this um, problem I, I really want to repent of, and it's I've been slandering people. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but it's a good illustration. And the pastor said, well, what I want you to do is I want you to take a pillow, a feather pillow. I want you to cut it open. I just want you to put a small pile of feathers on the doorstep of every single person you've said something bad about. And then come back to me. And so he went and he did it. It took him all day long because there's a lot of people. And he came back to the pastor. He says, okay, I've done it. He says, now what do I do? He says, now go gather up all the feathers. He says, there's no way I could ever do that. And he says, there's no way you could ever undo the damage you've done from the things that you've said. And that's just true, isn't it? And it's not just that. You know, I mean, I don't think that it's always that all of us have the problem of just, you know, talking bad about people openly or even whispering from one person to another. But sometimes we feel safe in some situations. My, my wife and I, years ago, we were, we were both um, having some trouble with a person that was working in ministry with us. 
And it was, it, we were getting frustrated because they had a different vision for where we were going and we were both kind of trying to lead this ministry and together and, and they were going in a different direction. So we were frustrated. And um, so we would talk at home. And, and, you know, we would say, I can't believe that this happened. I can't believe she did that. And I can't believe they did that. And, and we would kind of bat it back and forth between just me and her to the point where just within a couple of days of doing that, we honestly were like, you know, I don't even think that she's, she's a, a true Christian. It doesn't take very long to get to that place, right? And then we were at a children's ministry. We were doing children's ministry. We were at this children's ministry um, appreciation party, and everybody was there at Eagle Island. And we were walking down um, to, by the water there. And there was this lady. She was standing there. She was just musing. She wasn't talking to us necessarily. She would have talked to anybody who walked up. But she was just musing. She said, you know, I'm just down here thinking about something. You know, I, I heard Pastor John Corson talk about um, the children of Israel. And, and when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, you know, God sent fiery serpents amongst them because they were complaining about Moses and they were complaining about God. But you know what's interesting is John Corson pointed out that they weren't complaining in the city market. They weren't complaining with their neighbors. It says that they were murmuring in their tents. So it was fathers and, and daughters and husbands and wives. And brothers and sisters who were complaining about Moses and about God and God sent these fiery serpents. She says, I, I just never thought about that. And my wife and I look at each other like, oh boy, that's exactly what we've been doing. And so we repented of it. But how easy it is to think, oh, it's a safe place. I can argue here. Or I can complain here. But it's not. It's poison to our souls. In James chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths so that they obey us, and we turn their whole body. This is a pretty familiar picture, especially if you're a boy like me who grew up in Idaho and you grew up around horses. A lot of us in Emmett are um, connected with horses in some way. And you've probably been there where you go up to the horse and you take the bit and you push it up against his teeth and put the bridle over its head and you know, buckle it on. And, and then you throw the reins up and you get up on the horse and you can pretty much take that horse wherever you want to take it. Except for when it's angry, hungry, or scared. You know, then it does whatever it wants to do. But, I mean, for the most part, you can, you can take this powerful animal and this little thing on its tongue, you have complete mastery over that giant animal from just that little tiny thing, the tongue. You have its tongue, right? There was a 90-year-old man who was out in the woods picking berries, a bear all of a sudden blindsided him, knocked him down, and the bear was getting ready to bite him. And, and he, the only thing he thought to do, and I don't even know why he thought to do this, but the only thing he thought to do was reach up. He reached up into the bear's mouth and grabbed its tongue and held on with all of his might. And the bear just went, ah, and then broke free and ran away. Now, I do not recommend that for your strategy when meeting a bear in the woods. Stick your hand in its mouth. Probably not the best idea, but if that's all you got, I recommend actually a 45 with bear rounds. <laughs> but if that's all you got, you know, get it by the tongue. In verse, verse 4, he says, Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. 
When I was in probably junior high, I was probably 13 years old, 14 years old, somewhere in there. Um, we went to San Diego, and my brother was in the Navy, so we got a tour, the USS Independence, which has since been retired, but it's this a giant aircraft carrier ship. And so we got to walk up on the deck. We got to go down into the hallway. It's 1,070 feet long. And so when you stand on one very end of that ship, and you look down, the, there's two hallways that go all the way to the length of the ship. And you look down those hallways, and of course they have the, the you know, the locks, you know, in them, each, the, kind of the portal or holes, you know, going through, you have to step over as you go through. But as you look down, you can't even see the other end. If nobody's in the hallway, you can't see all the way to the other end. It's amazing how long that ship is. We went into the, the anchor room. The anchor room was probably three times the size of this room with these chain links that were the size of a house, each chain link holding the anchor up were the size of a house. It was just amazing to see the grandeur and the scope of how giant this vessel was. But its rudder, 15 feet long. 15 feet long is all it takes to steer that giant ship. And so your tongue can steer you one way or another for good or for bad. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. One of the biggest lies ever told. Verse 5, he says, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. Your tongue is one of the smallest parts of your body. It is the most flexible part of your body. For those of you who aren't very flexible, you do have a flexible tongue. 85% of us can turn our tongue, roll our tongue into a, into a tube. Let's try. I'm just kidding. I don't need to do that. And yet this is going to control the direction of your entire life. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He uses this illustration of a small flame that sets a forest afire. Isn't it amazing? We've seen the effects of this recently, haven't we? You know, um, old power lines in California not, you know, falling over because they're, they're, they spend all their money on clean energy and so they can't update their old equipment and so everything's burning down. Good plan. That's what happens. Um, you, you see what's going on in Oregon as people are lighting fires and, and you know, some of it's natural causes, some of it's campfires probably, but some people are actually lighting fires. In fact, there was a guy driving in a Prius, Jeremiah was telling us, there's a guy driving in a Prius launching um, fireworks or mortars into the woods to start the forest on fire. He drives a Prius because he cares about the environment. <laughs> and yet he's going to pollute the environment with a forest fire. It's amazing. And we see people do these things and how quickly one little flame can light an entire forest on fire and kill people. And how many people died in these fires that we've been having? How many of you have been suffocating for several weeks now because of these fires we have and yet he's saying that this is the, the effect of the tongue. One little word. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody's upset. Everything, um, people, people die at the, at the voice of, of the wrong person. Verse 6, he says, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Okay, James, don't candy coat it. Just tell us how you really feel about this. You kind of wonder as you read this, did James ever have a problem with his tongue? He seems to know a lot about this, doesn't he? I think we're all experts in this subject. 
But he uses these analogies, growing in their grandeur, starts out with a horse's bridle, goes to a ship's um, rudder, and then moves on to a small flame that an entire forest can be caught on fire by. And maybe you've seen the effect of your tongue. One thing we cannot underestimate is the power of your tongue to do damage in your own life and also the lives of those around you. Like they say, loose lips sink ships. Or what a tangled web we weave when we first plan to deceive. So many pits our tongue can dig us into. It's a world of iniquity set on fire by hell. It's interesting that a man who can tame his tongue could have control of the rest of his whole body. That's what he says here. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. It's always going to come out. Whatever's in you is always going to come out of your mouth. And you see that in people. I had a dear friend who, you know, everybody thought, man, this guy's just a really godly guy. And then he started to swear. And you kind of excuse, ah, oh, you know, whatever. He's getting older. <laughs> and then he started picking fights with people. <laughs> and you're like, what is going on? And the next thing you find out is that there's a whole lot more going on behind the scenes because your mouth can't keep quiet the things that are in your heart, out of the abundance of your heart. It's going to come out of your mouth. He's not done. He gives us another illustration in verse 7. He says, For every kind of beast, a bird, a reptile, a creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. We see this. We watched Flipper. See how they train the dolphin to do all that stuff. And, you know, we watch Benji and how they train the dog to do all that stuff. And, you know, people train lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. They train all those things. You know, you see dancing bears and um, go to SeaWorld and you see those giant killer whales. And you could totally bite a person in half and they have them completely trained. Verse 8, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil filled full of deadly poison. I don't know why, but this just reminds me of Genesis chapter 3. As Satan says to the woman, you shall not surely die, but God knows the day you eat of it, you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. And of course, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. And she took and she ate and as she bit into that fruit and the juices of that fruit drenched her tongue. She gave it to her husband and he ate. And then they sewed fig leaves together and they hid themselves from the presence of God. And when God says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat? The man said, it's that woman that you gave me. He begins to blame. Isn't it amazing how when things are stressful in our lives, so we start to attack the people that are closest to us, we blame them. It's your fault. It's your fault we don't have any money. It's your fault that that happened. It's your fault that we got in an accident. It's your fault. If you wouldn't bother me when I'm driving, if you wouldn't spend the money, if you wouldn't... 
And the stress can cause us just to turn on each other so quickly. He says we can train animals, but we can't train our tongue. We can't tame our tongue. I think it's funny. We, we do. How many of you guys are taking your dog to obedience school? You guys, anybody? Okay, last night, like everybody, it was crazy. His first service was like the three of us again. But you know, take your dog to obedience school, and then what do you, you just t- send your dog, and then you get it back, and it's perfect now? No, they have to take you there, and they have to train you, because you are actually the problem, right? <laughs> and so they tell you, oh, no, you can't talk to your dog like that. You can't do that. You have to, you know, say this, do it this way. You, then you do it, and you're like, that's all wrong. Your body language is wrong, your voice is wrong, your words are wrong, everything's wrong, everything with you is messed up. You've got to start from scratch, try it again. And, you, and you, you, know, you work at it, and then you get home, and you realize, I'm horrible at this. It's the same way when, when we train our kids. They're young and impressionable. They're easy to train. You know what the problem is? You. All your baggage, all your habits, all the stuff, that, all the issues you have in your past that you have to work through in order for you to train the child correctly so they don't become like you, right? That's the problem. It's your tongue. And so James goes on, he says, and, and he, just, he just points out how ridiculous this is. Verse 9, he says, with it with our tongue we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God love God with all your heart mind soul and strength the second commandment is the same is like it love your neighbors yourself praise you God you know why do you always act like that I can't believe you and you start vomiting on somebody and then somebody calls you on the phone hello oh praise the Lord that's great news you know, I mean, it's just so crazy. We're just like these Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Out of the same mouth, verse 10, proceed blessings and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. It's easy to get caught up in this in, this, in these days especially. You know, as we watch the news, we watch, you know, all oh, this group is doing this and that group is doing that and those people are doing that and that political party's like that and oh, I can't believe that and how can they do that and why can they say that and we get angry and we start to, you know, in this political environment, it's very popular to call people names, isn't it? It's to start making nicknames, you know, um, derogatory things towards people and I've caught myself doing that. And I read this, I'm like, ah, come on. Jeez. How easy, this is so convicting to me, how easy is it to think of somebody less than ourselves because of the political party that they're affiliated with, the religion that they belong to, the way that maybe they're confused and they identify themselves as something that they're not. And and it's so easy, they dress different than us, they look different than us, we feel uncomfortable with them. And how easy is it for us to think of them as less than us? And we saw this already in James chapter 2 when he says we are not to show partiality to anyone. But what is convicting to me is that that person, I don't care who they are or what they think or what they believe and how messed up they might be if they're into drugs or whatever and you just look at that person and you're like, ah, that's a person who's created in the image of God. You know, it was early on that the Christians, 
would see them throw the bodies of people over the walls of the Roman cities because they just considered them trash. They were an executed prisoner or something like that. They'd throw them on the trash heap. And the Christians would go and get those people, those dead men and dead women, and they would bury them. Why? Because they're created in the image of God and they must have a proper burial. They would take the babies that people discarded. They would go, unwanted by society. They'd, they'd, they'd throw them on the dump heap or they'd send them off in the, leave them in the wilderness somewhere for the animals to eat them. And the Christians would go and they'd rescue those babies and they'd adopt them into their families. Why? Because that baby has value. It's created in the image of God. Christians work tirelessly to, to end abortion. Why? Because those babies in those wombs are created in the image of God. In China, they, even today, they just abandon Female babies, oftentimes, little girls, they just, and, and, and many, many times in the past, they just leave them out in the wilderness and let the coyotes eat them. Why? Because it's a girl, she's no good. In that society, if you don't have a boy to take care of you, then, you know, what good is that to have a girl? And so they just leave their girls out for the animals to eat, and the Christians would take them in and adopt them. It was always the Christians. Why? Because we believe people are made in the image of God and everyone is worthy of our love and respect because they're made in the image of God. They may think very differently than you think. But God created them in His image and they have value for that reason. I love that um, one of my mentors, David Roper, he used to, he used to take the, the leader of the ACLU out to, out to lunch every year, at least once a year. And just talk to him and, and ask him questions and have a dialogue with him. And you know what that guy said to David? He said, I used to think Christians were the most evil people in the world. He says, until I met you. You guys are actually pretty reasonable. I mean, you think differently than I do, but I see why you think that way. You know, as they've dialogued and talked. You know, and, and we might think, oh, well, they're the most evil people in the world. But how are we going to bridge that gap unless we learn to love people and to see them as valuable? You know, Paul told Timothy, the servant of the Lord shouldn't quarrel, but be gentle to all, patient, willing to teach, that in hope that, they, that God might grant them repentance, they'd escape the snare of the devil, that he's held them captive to do his will. We're not going to make a difference in this world unless we get our tongue under control. Verse 11, he says, Does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Can a, a bitter spring bring forth clean water? Well, maybe you remember in the wilderness after they came through the Red Sea that Moses led them to the waters of Marah. They, they were bitter waters. And it was just awful, just a stench. And what happened was God told Moses, throw a tree into the water. And when the tree was applied to the bitterness, it became pure. And so it is for you and for me. When we apply the tree, the cross of Jesus Christ, to our bitterness, we become pure. Can a, a grapevine bear figs? Can an olive, a fig bear olives? Or however he said it. You know what? It's amazing to me. Again, the tree, when you, when you look at the tree of life in the New Jerusalem, it bears a different fruit in every season. And if you apply the tree to your life, again, you'll bear fruit and your fruit will be abundant. 
But James writes these things to us because he recognizes that every single one of us is a mess. And that's what he's saying to, to us. He's saying, you're a mess. You're faulty. You're, 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 you're foul. And how wrong is it that yet one minute you're praising God and you're, you're worshiping the Lord and one minute you're even blessing somebody and then the next minute you're cursing somebody. He says, these things should not be so. These, this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And he wouldn't say this to us if he didn't want to give us a remedy for that. He's not just saying that because we should all feel bad about ourselves. He's saying that because he wants us to fix that problem. But how do we fix that problem? How? Well, it's actually in our first verse of our next passage. So next week we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Just kidding. I won't leave it with that. We'll start with this next week. But I, I just want to go through this one verse, verse 13. And I think that James sums up everything he said so far in this one verse. He says this, who is wise and understanding among you? Let's ask ourselves that question. Who is wise and understanding among us? Anybody wise and understanding? Anybody here? No takers? Notice this. Let him show by good conduct that his works, and remember we, we talked about this last time, faith without works is dead. Works is the way that we display that we have faith, right? He says that your works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now this word meek is not the word meek that we see in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, blessed are the meek. This word meek actually means humility or lowliness. That your deeds, your works, are done in the meekness of wisdom. What is James talking about? He's talking about what he talked about in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Okay, so we talk about humility. We talk about faith. Let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. If he who, who doubts is like a wave tossed to and fro, let not that man expect to receive anything from the Lord, right? And this is what we've been talking about. And I think this is important because James 1.5 5 is the key to what he's talking about here, to the remedy to your tongue, but also the key to your Christian life. And we see this very simple formula here. Now, I, I learned years ago that faith is the key that unlocks grace, right? And that's, you know, it, it hit me one time. And everywhere we see this, the same pattern. Faith is the key that unlocks grace. In other words, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And by putting my trust in him, that unlocks the grace, salvation, right? By believing faith, in Jesus unlocks grace, salvation. But it's the same thing here. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. But nothing doubting. I have to believe that God will give me wisdom, and that unlocks the grace of wisdom, right? By faith, I receive wisdom because I believe God will give it to me. And so grace unlocks faith. Same thing for um, Philippians chapter 4, when he's talking about be anxious for nothing. So I have anxiety, right? But in all things... Through prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. So I'm going to put my, tr put it, my trust in God. And the, the grace is that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard my hearts and minds. But there's something I noticed this time around as I was going through James, that there's actually a really important part of this, and that is humility. And so it actually comes before faith. 
humility and faith unlocks grace. Because there's always repentance. God, I am a sinner. Before there is, I believe you died for my sins. Right? And without humility, if I don't think I'm a sinner, then I can't be saved. If I don't think I lack wisdom, then I don't get wisdom. If I don't think God can help me with my anxiety, then I'm not going to have anything from the Lord. But if I believe that I am messed up and I'm faulty and I'm flawed and my mouth is a problem and everything's wrong in my life and I need a Savior, Jesus will always be a Savior for me if I can put my trust in Him. So the meekness of wisdom, I come to God saying I lack, I have to admit that I've fallen, that I'm a failure, that I'm no good, I can't do it, I'm not smart, God, I'm not wise, God, I am a mess. And yet you are the fountain of all wisdom and knowledge. You are the father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. And if I run to him by faith, then the grace comes in my life. Is your mouth a problem for you? Do you say things you don't want to say? Confess it before the Lord. Lord, I know that I'm, my mouth is a huge problem. And I say this, I feel very convicted even standing up here saying this. And I'm right in the same seat as you right now. Because I need it just as much as everybody else. Lord, I know that my mouth is a problem. That I've, I've hurt people with it. I've said things I shouldn't. I've gossiped. I've slandered. I've done all those things I shouldn't be doing. And yet, Jesus, you died for that. And I believe that you can give me wisdom to not only remedy my problem of whatever's coming out of my mouth, but also that what I would speak would actually be speaking blessing on people rather than cursing. And the Lord can give us that grace if we come to Him by faith. You see, that's what happens when we spend time in the Lord's presence anyway. The Lord allows you to go through problems because He knows that those problems are going to drive you to Him. And then in Him you're going to find the solutions. All God wants is to spend time with you, to have a relationship with you, to be close with you, for you to, to seek Him and to trust in Him and depend on Him. And if we do that, our lives will be blessed. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Lord, we just lay out this troublemaker before you right now, knowing that we've caused ourselves a lot of harm, caused other people a lot of harm by the words that we've spoken the things that we've said, the things that we've whispered, the things that we've muttered. And Lord, we need a remedy for that. And you are that remedy. Apply the cross to our mouth, Lord, that we would be crucified with you and yet live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, help us to be in that place. Purify and cleanse us. Help us to be those who would see value in all people and not to speak evil of people but to spread love and joy and peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me?